Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Ken the Provocateur. And we're here continuing our journey into Never Say Never Again with the first of our two interviews about the film. Cam, who have we got? Yes, we are being joined by writers Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, who joined the production of Never Seen Ever Again and did on-set rewrites because the original script was done by Lorenzo Semple Jr., but it needed a lot of work. And these were two of the major contributing voices to shaping the final film. Yeah, we're really excited to have Dick and Ian on the show. I mean, they've created some masterful comedies here in the UK, and I think we can all agree they saved Never Say Never Again. Um, I can't wait for you to hear it. Without further ado, Cam, roll the interview. And on the show, we are joined by two screenwriting titans. It is Mr. Dick Clement and Mr. Ian Lafrenet. How are you doing, gents? Fine, thank you. Very well. Didn't expect to be called a titan so early in the day. <laughs> <laughs> it's late afternoon here in England, so it's oh, well deserved at this oh, point. Oh, fine. Go for it. <laughs> um, well, we are here to talk about Never Say Never Again. It's the film we're discussing this week. And I think before we talk about some of your other spy projects that you actually worked on before that film, I want to get to James Bond. And I think maybe to sort of paint the picture, what's um, both of your earliest memories when it comes to James Bond pre Never Say Never Again? Did you watch the original films in the 60s? What were you thinking? We saw all of them, I'm sure. Absolutely. I mean, they were required viewing. I mean, you, did, you didn't sort of skip one. You know, they're, they've always been an event. And obviously, I liked some more than others and liked some of the Bonds more than others. But, uh, you know, the whole idea of, of Never Say Never Again was that there was an implicit uh, sense that we've got the real James Bond, you know. And, and as I'm sure you know, it was, it was, it was nothing to do with Saltzman and, and Broccoli. And they were, the, the producers were terrified of being sued. So we heard all the stories about the fact that they had several scripts written. One in which they said, oh, we can only use the dialogue from the book. Uh, that obviously didn't work. I believe Francis Ford Coppola wrote one, which we never saw. Um, but we had heard about this and, and, and we, we had a, an inquiry in, in, in LA. Uh, are you free to do a rewrite on a Bond film? And we said, yeah, yeah. And then nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. And we were quite disappointed. And then if I remember, weren't you on the set of uh, Our Fidesz Patty and when you ran into Kirshner? Isn't that right? Yes, because when we, certainly in pre-production, the, the, the Bond film was pre-production and post-production was at Elstree Studios, where we were doing Our Fidesz and Pet. So when we were in post-production, it was fantastic just to be in the editing room on the Bond film, then pop over and have lunch with all the brickies. That was uh, such a happy period of time. Um, but yes, I think it was. He mentioned this. But I think it was you, Dick, who said, why don't you get someone to do a rewrite? And then, it, then we heard nothing. You we did. It. And then suddenly it came back to us. When it came back to us, they'd already started shooting. So, so Dick and I, at one time, we were shown footage and said, can you do anything about that? Meaning uh, scenes that had already been shot. This was in the south of France. Yeah, and there was one particular scene, which was a big master shot with no cut-ins. 
which made it in, almost impossible. But so we wrote quite a few lines, which were then over someone's shoulder to improve scenes that had already been filmed. Uh, with with two third with seven eighty percent of the film, of course, it wasn't. We, we were it was all our original material that hadn't been shot. But, it, but we we were hired to go to the south of France for a, a period of only a few days, and uh, and and it it was highly political. You could tell there was a uh, you know they they were terrified of Sean. And, uh, and people left the room when, some, when somebody else came in. It was very tricky. Anyway, what was interesting for us was we're at the airport to go home. It's over, finished. And I said to Irving Kirshner, I said, do you like this pre-credit sequence? And he had a little rabbinical beard and he said, oh, not necessarily, have you got a better one? And, and the whole point was the, the original pre-credit sequence was a jousting tournament with two knights with tin cans on their head. Um, and then eventually, you know, when it's over, you take off the tin can and you find it's Sean Connery. This seemed to be a terrible waste of the fact that you'd got the real James Bond, you know. Uh, and so we, we said this to him and he said, well, can you write a better one? So we said, yeah, sure. So anyway, we went back to London uh, and, and suddenly uh, in the middle of the night, uh, we, we got a call saying, can you go to the Bahamas tomorrow? So uh, what are you going to do? Of course we did. So we went and we rewrote this, this, this opening sequence, which is, um, you, you know, him on a training course and it's bond against the clock and tick tock, tick tock. It was very good. And, and the crew loved it when they, when they saw it cut together. And then I think they made one of the worst post-production decisions ever. They put a song over it, which completely took away any tension that was there. And it wasn't a very good song either. And so no. that, that, that happened. But we, so we, we got very involved uh, once we were in the Bahamas. <laughs> I remember one of the things we said was, um, why, is, why does Bond go to the Bahamas? Uh, and, uh, uh, and Kirshner said, I don't know. He said, well, we better find a reason because there's a crew there now shooting underwater stuff. So, <laughs> so it really was uh, pretty chaotic. And uh, that, of course, that's a lovely situation for writers to be in. It's our old adage is it's a bit like being plumbers. You know, you, you don't negotiate if the basement is flooded. And, and so we, we got on with it and we got on with Sean very well. We'd worked with him before and um, on the rock, you know, so no, the rock was after. Oh God, was it? Yes, you're right. Yes, but yeah. um, there was, I didn't want to correct you on that one. I was no, there right was, there. <laughs> you know, even titans can slip up. Uh, <laughs> this um, there were two camps. The producer was Jack Schwartzman, and he was involved with as executive producer the guy who'd originally what's his name, the guy who'd Kevin originally McClory. Did, uh, Ken McClory, but uh, but Sean quite rightly was very pissed off because obviously the production was a bit of a shambles why would they bring writers in when you know when they'd already shot stuff and that was quite obvious and sean kept referring to it as a mickey mouse outfit but basically dick and i were trying to keep in the neutral corner because if there was a meeting there was definitely you know a frisant if one if schwartzman came in the room or sean came in the room so Dick and I were complete, said, we said right up front to the producers, by the way, we are completely neutral. These, these other problems are nothing to do with us. 
we, we, we are not in Sean's corner and we're not in your corner. And then, of course, at the end of the meeting, Sean would turn to us and say, where are we going for dinner? <laughs> it was quite obvious where our, our loyalties lay. Um, we were rather like UN observers. We should have worn those pale blue caps or something. Yeah, but it was, I mean, as a, a, to be involved with it was, it was exciting because we'd been brought up on James Bond. You asked, did we watch them? When we were, you know, the first James Bond film, as Dick said, every Bond film was an event. Standing in line at the cinema, the first one I ever saw was at the Odeon on the King's Road. That was Never Say Never Again. I can, mm. I can completely remember. Well, uh, I, I did have a, a question when we we're just sort of getting into the film. There's a, a bit of an urban legend with the two of you and a previous Bond film that you also worked on Moonraker. We, yes. we did. Uh, well, we true. got a very nice airfare and went to Paris. And we wrote quite a few things in a very nice hotel. And then they said to us, oh, we've changed the location. Uh, I think they were going to shoot in Brazil, or did they end up shooting in Brazil? Whatever no, no, they, 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 they were, we, shot a, we wrote a sequence set in Brazil. That's right. And they said, we can't afford to go to Brazil. So it was, um, it, as Dick said, it was first class to Paris, the Raphael Hotel, uh, with enormous bathrooms, dinners in Paris with Schultzman, who always seemed to be surrounded by an enormous amount of beautiful young women. And, uh, and then really there was hardly anything of what we wrote in the film. I think nothing. Probably, I no, there's one line. There's one line. In there a is? There's one line in a Venetian glass factory. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes, one line. But it's a fucking good line. <laughs> I can't remember it. But, I, but it was a, very, a great trip. But no, it was, it was interesting to see the whole machinery of, of, uh, of the Bond process working, you know. But, but no, the, but that was nothing like the, the involvement we had with Never Say Never Again, where we were involved in the cutting room as well. Um, and as Ian said earlier, the, there were times when you, you needed to explain certain things. We needed to put lines over the back of people's heads and stuff like that. Yeah. So, we but were was, heavily involved. It was a fun, but it was a lovely in, intersecting with our feelings. And I'll tell you a story which is in our book. So I, I was in Dick. I don't wait Dick. I was in the cutting room with Irv Kirshner, this endless, boring underwater stuff. And in the next editing room was Barbara Streisand, who was editing Yentl. And one, and she knew Kirsch, and she saw how busy we were. And one day, she very nicely gave us a bottle of red wine. Then I went over to, to have lunch with the, the Alfida Zen cast. And I said, Barbara Streisand uh, just gave me a bottle of red wine. And they thought about this for a moment. And then Jimmy Nail said, fuck off. And that, that was the end of the conversation. So yeah. I was never believed. But that was fantastic, going, having the two things being done at the same time. Yeah. Well, I have a question. I'm really curious because you're working from the Thunderball uh, novel with Never Say Never Again. Um, and you had that original draft by Lorenzo Sample Jr. When you guys join, you know, what is missing? Because I would think the book would give a pretty strong framework, but what was missing? Well, we, you know, I don't know if we, we didn't, I don't think, did we read the book? Of course, we'd all seen, no, the, I Thunder, we'd all seen the Thunderball movie, mm. which we thought was best not to see again. It, you you um, know that that's, it, it was the fact that uh, he had the rights to it. 
that mm. I think they, when they, and they never, they said, oh, you can have the remake rights. And they never thought they'd make the, the book twice. But of course, that was what, what he had. And that's what he, what he used to get the film launched. I think probably we used sample script more than anything and just gave it much more character and, and created different situations and, and redid uh, nearly all the dialogue. Um, but it was still, it was not the most ideal circumstances. Doing, doing bits and pieces. We totally invented Rowan Atkinson's character. Um, he was not in the original script and we, we thought it, it needed some humor. And, and Rowan had never been out of the country, actually. He'd certainly never crossed the Atlantic until that moment. So, uh, so that, that was our in, invention as well. We never got a credit. And, and you, sometimes you do, sometimes you don't. But we actually felt we really had earned one on Never Say Never Again. Yes, yes, so did Sean. He, he, um, he kind of made an official appeal about it, didn't he? Yeah, but the, to the Writers Guild, but it well, that happens. I remember saying to him one morning, I said, "I don't know, look, this is, this is quite Bondy." And I said, "Look, you, you, you have sex with a girl uh, in the morning, and then you you have an underwater incident, and then you have sex with another girl in the evening." I said, "That proves something." And he said, "I it proves it's a movie." <laughs> Yeah, looking at your careers up to the point where you did Never Said Ever Again, obviously a lot of work, but some of the main things, of course, were Porridge and Likely Lads over here in the UK. Comedies, in a sense. And when they brought you in, were they looking for your comedy skills or were they looking for other things from you? Or was it mainly comedy you put into the script? Um, oh, I oh, I don't think I, I don't think it was. Oh, let's get some jokesters. I don't think so. We'd written some nasty stuff. We'd written villain, mm -hmm. um, and we'd written something else here in America. No, I don't. I don't think they said let's let's joke it up. No, they, they needed structure. They needed they needed a dramatic structure. They needed structure. I think is the word. Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's I mean, uh, but it was because of our experience on Never Say Never Again that that we were brought in on the Rock. That was Sean's idea. He said to Jerry Bruckheimer, "I've got." I'd like to suggest uh, Dick and Ian to come in on this film. And that was a film we never expected to get um, a credit on because, because there was so much action had already been written by Jonathan Hensley. Yeah. We, we came in specifically for Sean. And then, of course, you can't write dialogue for one person without then it, with the, with the you know, effect of the ripple effect of everyone else around you in those scenes. That, that was a fantastic. I loved doing that film. That, that was great. And funnily enough, that was completely different. That was a really professionally prepared film. We actually, which is very rare, spent five days in a hotel suite, uh, conference room, with, with the principals of the cast rehearsing. That was, that was rare for anything we've done. And, you know, you had Nicholas Cage, Sean Connery, William Forsyth, John Spencer. That was, uh, that was a, a bit of a... One for the show reel that highlight. Nicholas, Nicholas Cage, of course. Yeah. yeah, Nick Cage. So that was very well prepped, that film. Yeah. As you'd expect a Michael Bay film to be. Right. 
And, you know, you've written for Sean Connery, you know, obviously off Never Say Never Again and The Rock. And he's one of those actors who's so quotable. What goes into writing like a, a great Sean Connery, you know, quip or line? Because you guys have, you know, had a hand in several. Well, I think with The Rock, it was a sense we said this man, Sean wasn't playing an American. He was playing it as a Scot. Mm. So that was our clue. That was our portal. You know, we, we, we it, this it was this Celtic man, so some you know references. There's a line which we wrote from. He said, "I'd rather be a poet or a shepherd than a killer," or something. You know that the clue to that was Sean was playing it as a Scottish hard man, of which we ran across a few. <laughs> in in, in the, we were winging it much more on "Never Say Never Again" because that was Bond speaking, and that's. You know, well, no, Sean always had a Scottish brogue, even for Bond, didn't he? Oh, yeah. But yeah. but Bond, Bond sort of credentials have been established because of, you know, the, the one-liners and the quips, which we find rather difficult to come up with. I mean, Roger loved those one-liners, didn't he, which went with the raised eyebrow. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> he did. Rather famously in Never Said Ever Again, you reference one of your own jokes from the first episode of Porridge, which yeah. I stumbled upon accidentally in preparation for this, as I'd never seen an episode of Porridge in my life. And I'm British. I don't know how I've managed 35 years and not seen one. And so I watched the first episode. I'm like, hey, I've heard that joke before. Yes. And then yes. it turns out you guys have referenced it many times in anecdotes, and I've just missed it. But um, what, what made you want to sort of re reference yourself, really? Well, it, no. Homage. It, it, homage. It was cheeky. It was totally cheeky, but we, we said it's a good joke, so it let's is. let's use it. And actually, we, when we've done lectures, we have we have put the two moments together: one with one with Sean saying the line, and one with Ronnie Barker saying the line. And then we we always say, well, we were we were always in great believers in recycling. We have a third. <laughs> we have a we we have a third version. Because we did the American version of Porridge, which was best for another conversation. And the lead was, uh, instead of Ronnie Barker, our lead was Puerto Rican. So we have a third version of that joke. We do. Puerto Rican accent, saying, from here? Uh, Ronnie's is the best. Yes, sure. I, I was going to ask who you prefer out of the two there. So, okay. Ronnie, Ronnie wins that one. But, yeah. you know, looking at the dialogue then and, and your contributions to Never Say Never Again, is there a, a line that you created that ended up in the finished project that you're both really proud of or a moment that you created? Uh, my favorite line that we wrote was when he goes to see Q, uh, who was played by Alec McCown. Isn't that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we yes. thought this is the first scene with Q. We're reestablishing a new Q. And we gave Alec McCann, he says, now you're back, Mr. Bond. I hope we're going to get some more gratuitous sex and violence around here. And, and that seemed a very funny line to establish the new cue. And also to, to re-establish Sean Connery. It, it's perfectly cheeky. But I'm, I'm also very, I'm very fond of that credit sequence, pre-credit sequence of the opening sequence. And I, I think it was really, it was a huge improvement on, on uh, nights beating the crap out of each other. Anyway. And also, I mean, you have that opening, which had never been done before. The idea of like a training mission off the top. And just four years later, the Eon films would do the same thing. So they yeah. must have recognized a good idea there. I guess so. Yeah. 
I've just seen that in a film in the last two weeks. It's an, it's absolutely the same. It's a modern film that's out now, or screaming, it's a fake out. It's a five minute sequence, which which is which is the same, exactly the same principle. It was a what if, you know, or a, or a training sequence. Well, uh, uh, um, uh, Slow Horses, is that the right title? Um, yes. Oh, that's slow horses. That's yeah, right. The opening, the opening yeah. sequence there is a training exercise that goes wrong, but but that's that's and it's like, brilliantly shot in the airport. Is, it's fantastic. Yeah, really good. Do you know the series we're talking about? It's just come out. The Gary Oldman yes. series. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The opening. The opening five minutes. Yeah. Um. Well, I I suppose before we move on to anything else, then just looking back on Never Say Never Again, what are your thoughts on the film finished product? I think it, it it's it's pretty good until you get to the the sort of the end and the, the obligatory underwater sequence. I think I think the ending, which we really didn't touch, is a bit lame, I, I, and it, it's that it, that it lets itself down there. But but it did okay. I mean, you know, people wanted to go and see it because it was it was Bond and it was it was Connery again. You know, and he's he's a he was a huge huge star. And I just had a quick question about Connery. Um, so often in pop culture, they'll do these stories of the older version of a hero. But you guys were actually doing this with Bond where it was an older Bond. And I think you did it really well where it's carried beginning to end. There's never a sense of a couple old jokes off the top and then, you know, completely forgotten. What went into kind of writing, you know, that older Bond character? Well, it's strange, you know, because now that we are officially old, um, at the time, we thought, we were addressing this issue of Bond being old, but Sean was only 50, 54, wasn't he? He was younger than Roger Moore was at 19, the time. 1984, Bond was born in 1930, Connery. He was, he was, I think he was 54, so it wasn't like he was really old. But of course, we did. We, we had him in the health form. We had him just one or two scenes where he's you know, showing his age, a bit like the Wild Bunch when they... When they was, Found it so difficult to climb on a horse. Uh, well, in, in a way, that opening sequence is in the is, opening sequence. Yes, is, but is, has he still got it? Do you know what I mean? In a way, mm. the, that's the implicit uh, sense of it. You know, or is he past it? And of course, he he wasn't. I think in the original novels, I think Bond was always in his late thirties, wasn't he? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, always like not not quite forty. But Sean always looked mature, didn't he? Yeah. Sean, even when he was never say never again, you know, yeah. he didn't look like he'd just come out of college. Yeah. Well, I think moving on to some of your other spy works, gents, the two I've actually caught up with in the last couple of days are Otley and Catch Me a Spy from okay. uh, I think 68 and 72, I believe, off the top of my head. Um, very different films. Tom Courtney's in both of them. But uh, any memories of those particularly? Well, I, I love Otley. We love uh, Otley, and Dick, first for me, director, was great. But we, we don't really talk about the other one. Uh, no, it, it, there, there were a lot of things. Otley was a, a lovely experience, and it, it was delightful to work with Tom, who's remained a great friend. And I think it's a good film. I think it's got a lot of humour. But, I mean, there, there was the, the basic idea of a total innocent being involved in stuff that is way out of his depth. Mm -hmm. um, and that that obviously is a comedic situation, which which was fun. 
but it was it's still quite tense and it's got some good action in it. Catch Me a Spy, we were offered, turned it down. It's from a book. We didn't like the book, to be honest. Um, and it was one of those moments when our agent said, well, if you do this, I'll get you to do the film you really want to do. That never happened. And it's, um, it's a bit of a mess. To be honest, the only way that it could have worked would have been a very light touch, rather like charade or charade, mm -hmm. whichever pronunciation you like. And, uh, you know, a Cary Grant sort of in the lead. And then suddenly uh, the producer said to me, we've signed Kirk Douglas. Well, you know, Kirk, Kirk's a very nice man and a very, very good screen actor. But, but the light touch is not anything that he would uh, himself say that he was uh, especially good at, you know. And that, that did cramp our style. And it was, uh, it, it, was, it was not an altogether happy experience. Oh, it was a, it was a horrible experience. But the first thing he said to Dick, what the first when you I think we met him at the Dorchester or oh, hello, yes, the Dougie Hayward's tailor shop where he was getting his suits made. First thing he said to, to Dick was, "I don't do comedy." Yes. So I mean, that's we're starting from there. But it's a mess, and also it's a mess because they didn't have the budget. We were lied to continually, and they didn't have the budget to to do that process work correctly. And, uh, uh, you know, so many things went wrong, including my classic thing. Dick said, you can direct second unit. And I went out with a crew on, on, on the lock. Those locks are terrifying, by the way. And I, I, I dropped the Araflex overboard. And um, so somewhere, and generations ahead, they will find this bit of film. <laughs> he was not asked to do second unit again. No, the, the, <laughs> but the stuntmen said, don't worry, and don't worry, Mike, we'll get it. And they dived down. They came up about 30 seconds later and said, forget it. They were so <laughs> terrified of, this, of the lock. Lock or? Lock or. I mean, it, there was no proper hotel. So you had Kirk in this tiny, tiny freezing room, Trevor Howard getting incredibly drunk every night. Marlene, the actress, complaining about her close-ups, um, the weather, there were sheep that was freezing. Then, <laughs> oh, God, there were sheep everywhere. Um, <laughs> she had a tiny scar on her, on her face from something. And she would say to me before every show, Deke, how is it for my scar? And I got used to that, you know. But there was one shot where we're in a field with Highland cattle, and, you know, the camera is about 300 yards away. And then suddenly I hear, I said, Deke, how is it for my scar? You know, so <laughs> she was a very nice lady. But it was, a, it was a strange, strange situation. Oh, Ben, but tell him about Sean. Sean was very, I mean, sorry. Um, Kirk was very, very difficult with Dick in the mornings. Questioning everything, abrupt, bad-tempered. Then he'd go to his trailer for lunch. And in the afternoon, he was a sweetheart. Uh, yeah. But then we found out it was because he had a very large spliff during the break and changed completely. Wow. And, uh, but the next uh, morning we were back to normal again. And then <laughs> just as a, just as a uh, postscript, um, a few years ago, about 10 years ago, um, I was at a party in L.A., you know, typical Hollywood party, and there at the bar, sitting on his own, was Kirk nursing a very large vodka 
and so he must, you know, he's about 90. But I went up to him and I said, you don't know me or remember me. We did a film together and we both got ripped off royally. We're both owed a lot of money by the producer. And he looked at me and he said, ah, you know, it's only money. And I thought, I thought he's just had another large spliff <laughs> <laughs> to have that attitude. But what a man. I mean, you know, what a career. But he, was oh, just, yeah. he was in the wrong film. We should never have accepted to begin with. No. And everything, no. everything that went wrong went wrong. But, but Dick just didn't have the budget to make a proper action film. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Yippee! Our Star Wars Episode 1 coverage on Agents of the Field is out now. Plus, we are tracking down Hannibal Lecter and the Tooth Fairy in Michael Mann's Manhunter. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But... Before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, you guys did a mini-series of the Spies of Warsaw, and I'd yeah. be just interested to know about, you know, your connection. Did you have a connection to the novel by Alan First, or? Well, oh yes, Alan First. We loved Alan First, and we said let's. And we pitched Spies of Warsaw, which I read, and Dick and I were doing a lecture thing gig on the Queen Mary. I think it was New York, Southampton, wasn't it? And I gave Dick the novel, and he said, oh, isn't it great? And we, we were first fanatics. And we tried, um, we went to a couple of film companies. They had no interest, uh, you know, as a feature. And it was just, it was the genre was out of fashion, uh, even though it's only a few years ago. And then we, we got a deal at the BBC. And we, we were over the moon. And then... We even wrote the sequel. We wrote a sequel to it, but that, but that never happened. Mm. And then, we, then of course, we met David Tennant, and then, then the rest is. Um, we, we hated the result because they cut it, didn't they, to three or four episodes? Well, I, I think the big, the big mistake was it went out in, in two ninety-minute segments. Well, that's mm -hmm. it. Big mistake. It should have been three hours. Because, and, you know, we, we should have seen that from the beginning. I think 60 minutes on television is a great length. You know, you can 90 minutes, you know, you haven't always got 90 minutes. And it's, uh, and it's, it's just different. And I think that was a, a mistake. However, we're very proud of it. And we think it's, you know, it's, it's got a lot of merit. And, and David Tennant was lovely to work with. Um, and, and a very, very, very good guy. The funny thing, the, the ironic thing is you're talking about Espionage films. Probably espionage spy literature is, is our favorite. We are, and we have, over 40 years, we'd have killed to have done a Le Carre adaptation and made it known. But of course, probably when we were younger and you're in the comedy compartment, 
it, it probably we weren't considered, but until we done got drama under our belt. But but it's always been, uh, you know, we did. Um, it's not really a spy film, but it's it's like the genre. We did Archangel with uh, Daniel Craig. It's mm-hmm. very similar to the spy genre, isn't it, Dick? Yes, very much so. I mean, it's just we'd have loved to have had more work in this genre. Yeah. Um, and now that when Dick mentioned uh, the ho- uh, the empty horses, that that's a new writer we've become very fond of. Yeah. Uh, it's just that we we would we would have uh, been happy to have written in this genre for years. Yeah. Well, then going back to Spies of Warsaw. Uh, one thing I was interested to know is obviously you mentioned as as well, Ian, the sort of the, the comedy uh, uh, section you were in, but this is a straight spy story. What sort of uh, previous spy stories, spy novels were you drawing on to help put this story together? Well, as Ian said, Lord Carey, certainly. Just, yeah. Mm. But I mean, but we, as I said, by then we'd become fans of Alan first. Dick read him first turned me on to him yeah. so we, we 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 read we devoured his novels didn't we because when we first we realized he had several and we actually we actually wanted to do uh, another novel of his uh, first one of his early ones yeah but they, 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 someone had the rights and wouldn't let go of them yeah um, and then we met Alan first himself uh, he came to LA and had lunch with us and he was delighted that we'd set it up because Although he's written about 20 uh, New York Times best-selling spy books, none of them have been uh, made for the screen. Yeah. It's very, very odd. It's definitely something that's changed since the sort of 60s, 70s, where you were getting a lot more spies on the big screen. Now it, it, you do get TV adaptations uh, some of the times, much like Slow Horses, like you mentioned, but there seems to be fewer of those serious Cold War intrigue spy stories on the big screen now. I know it's sad. I tell you why we like the Cold War is because it was pre-digital. Now everything is satellites, computers, uh, CCTV. Everything's technical. To be a spy, you know, you sit in Washington D.C. and order a missile to take some poor man out in the middle of Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? Everything is technical. It's like when we did that film, The Bank Job. That was pre-digital. It was analog people. Do you know what I mean? And that's what so many people liked about it. And and, the, and I still love Cold War literature, where everything seemed to depend on ingenuity and nerve. You know, you say you would, you know, dream to do a Le Carre adaptation. Is there a particular novel that would be like your great fantasy project to tackle? Oh, they, they've been made. I, I, for me, it would have been A Perfect Spy, which was a okay. great, great series. Yes, or Tinker Taylor, which was a great series. I'd have loved to have done the movie when they brought it back. Um, I loved. Um, it's incredible how many Le Carre uh, novels have been made. Oh, oh my God! The Night Manager was brilliant. Oh, that's marvelous. We got close to the Night Manager because Lauren Donner, who made all the X Men films, she had it for a while, didn't she, Dick? I'd forgotten that. And she talked to me about it. And I said, God, yes. And then I guess she lost the option or something happened. And then, well, but what a great series that was. That's terrific. Yeah, really wonderful. Well, someone might be listening. Well, you you know, you've had the the Ipcris files been recently been made into a new TV show that was, I think, quite successful. So maybe they'll start looking again. 
You never know. Yeah, you and, never know. Never say never. <laughs> yeah, never say never. Good. And the other man we like is Joseph Cannon. Um, yes. Yeah. Really uh, good. Really good. I'm just looking at my bookshelf from where I'm sitting, and I have this row of lacaries. You know, it's sometimes you just don't throw them away. No, mine are just over there. <laughs> Cam them. has a copy of uh, Little Drummer Girl. That's uh, right. On hand. Oh, another. That was a bad film. Oh, that was... could... oh no! But then they made it into a mini series with that girl. What's her name? Florence Pugh. Flor Florence, she's great. But it was uh, good. well, the the movie was a terrible piece of casting. Yeah, just yeah. really, really terrible. Because it was we 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 happened to know it was based on Le Carre's sister Charlotte Cornwall. I mean, who was who was very sort of uh, left wing and and a, a firebrand, you know, and who got herself in trouble. And we knew her as well, actually. And um, you, you know, and uh, who who did it? The movie? It's uh, Diane Keaton. Diane Keaton. Uh, oh well, here he is an incredible coincidence, bit of serendipity, wrapping up three projects. When we were editing at Elstree and next to Barbara Streisand and seeing the Alfidas and Lance for lunch, I went outside for a smoke out the editing suites. And I heard a conversation through an open window of a Warner Brothers, I think, executive shouting down the phone to someone in Hollywood. And it was something like, Keaton is not right. Now, I might be getting that wrong, but let's put another actress. And they were in the conversation. It was about casting Little Drummer Girl. So isn't that incredible? Yeah. You, were, you were channeling your inner spy there, Ian, by listening yes, in the conversation. Yes, I just, I just <laughs> linked three projects together. Yeah. Well, I, I, maybe before we like wrap up with a couple of questions, one thing I did note down, you mentioned The Rock. Is there any other projects that you have um, perhaps helped with, didn't get credit, so I can't find on IMDb, that were spy movies, ones that maybe you just sort of brushed past? Yeah, um, no. Well, we did a lot for Brookheimer. You know, we, we did, did we worked on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, we did, mm. but that wasn't spies. We did a bit. No. We did a bit on, on uh, what's this Nicholas Cage film with cars? So oh, gone in sixty seconds. Yeah, um, but yes. those, you know, those are just coming in as a, just to do a favor, and and and, and which meant we got a, a beautiful Christmas hamper every December. <laughs> <laughs> but those were, you know, we were just hanging out at Brookheimer's office. Oh, here's a little peripheral. This is not exactly a spy story, but it almost is. Um, Leonard Part Six, do you remember that film with Bill Cosby? Mm -hmm. Other people, not me, have said perhaps one of the worst films ever made. We were invited at the end. Of, we, we, we were on the lot at Columbia. and we, One day we saw people coming out of a screening room with ashen faces. I mean, you could tell by the body language that there was something wrong with this movie, you know. And we then were asked, uh, they, said, they said, look, could you possibly um, help a little bit of narration? And it was Tom Courtney, again, was playing Cosby's valet, and they wanted us to write some dialogue to explain the premise of the movie. We did it, um, it didn't help at all. It was like putting Band-Aid on a paraplegic. But but funny thing was, they said to us, um, "We can't pay you for this because it's completely unofficial." It, yeah, it's, it's off the charts. Now. But would you like a car each? We said, "Yeah, okay." So they 
they, they, they gave us these enormous mercury station wagons. Mine hardly fitted up my street. And we had these big cars, you know, thought, oh, okay, fine. And we had them for quite a few months until we, we had got a call one day from somebody who said, do you still have your car, that car? We said, yeah. I said, we're coming to get it. But it, we, they had overlooked repossessing re, um, it for about four months. But it was a, it's an extraordinary piece. It, it, and we, knew the, we knew the director, Paul Wayland, and felt very sorry for him, actually, because he was... But it is technically a spy movie. It is technically a, technically a spy movie. So I think we're absolutely right <laughs> and proper to bring it up. It's terrible. I almost wish you hadn't have told us that because it means that we have to look at it now. I don't know if I want to do that. Oh my! No, it's it's worth looking at. It's it's it it is considered one of the great disasters ever, and it was a vanity project of Cosby's, who then removed all responsibility for himself. Yeah, he was he was he produced it. I mean, he was he the produced producer. it. He was in it. He, he also Coca Cola owned Columbia Studios. He was a spokesman for Coca-Cola, so almost every scene includes him drinking from a bottle of the stuff. This one scene where he's holding up a bottle and for about 90 seconds, you know, uh, as it blatant. Oh, and there's also there's also a plug for Alka-Seltzer at the end of it, which is which is it is quite extraordinary. Um, anyway, there we are. Well, I You've blown my mind with that. I, I'm not sure I'll ever get over that film if I have to watch it. We'll, we'll find out. But I think to sort of wrap us up, we always ask our guests a couple of quick fire spy movie questions uh, to take us home. Gentlemen, the first question is, what is your favourite spy movie? Oh, God. Oh, my goodness. I think, obviously, the spy came in from the cold had an enormous impact because that was the first time I'd ever heard the name Le Carre. And it's still a very powerful, but it's very, very bleak. It is bleak. It's, it's mm -hmm. so bleak. I'm trying to think of a more contemporary one. Where there was a one I, I really liked with... Oh, I'm trying to think. I loved it. Well, it wasn't really... Spot. Well, it, it, yeah, it's definitely... I loved Enemy of the State. Okay, yeah. yeah. Remember that I thought Tony Scott's film, I thought that was a terrific film. Um. But I wish I wish you'd given us warning of this because I'll kick myself <laughs> when you, when we've rang up. It's I, always I, the way. I, I think it's not a movie, but I think Tinker Taylor uh, on TV was, I mean, just burnt into my mind. Ian and I always remember a moment when um, I, I think it's from Tinker Taylor, where he's he's in some roadside. That uh, he and who was the guy. The younger guy, Ian, who was played by, originally by Hewell Bennett. Michael, Michael Jaston. Michael Jaston. Anyway, they're in this restaurant. Oh, right. He and Guinness. He and Guinness stop at a restaurant. And Guinness tastes the wine and just makes this face. <laughs> oh, really? No. And it's just, it's just wonderful. That's nothing to do with being a spy. But I love that series. I love the whole... Uh, the whole the, the the texture of it. I, I I should be googling off screen here. Best spy movies ever. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'll think of one. It's um as I, I read an interview with, with the two of you earlier, and I was expecting to hear a different film. Uh, I, I heard the Third Man brought up. Oh well, that, is that a spy movie? It's peripherally so. I mean, I it's say. one of our it's one of all our time. Yeah. all time favorite movies ever. I just 
was talking to some young UCLA film students about it, and then they all watched it and loved it. Um, but it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant film. At Christmas, I had family, including a teenager, so we watched a lot of teenage movies, and I, I watched the the remake of um, Ghostbusters, which is dreadful. Hmm. And at the end, the end of it, she went to bed, and I said, "I've got to watch a decent movie." I mean, I just and I put on the Third Man for the eighteenth time or whatever. It's still magnificent. It's a really magnificent movie. If you could, I'd make that my my choice. If if we think it's a spy film, it's if not it's a spy movie. Then that's our choice. Yeah, it's sort yeah. of spy adjacent. I think it counts. Yes, yeah, spy adjacent. Yeah. Well, following on from there, as you did write at least two spy uh, Bond movies, what's your favorite James Bond movie? That narrows it down to twenty-seven at least. Yeah, well, I, I think one of the Daniel Craig ones. Uh, I, I liked what Daniel Craig brought to the part. I loved Casino, Casino Royale, the first Daniel Craig film. Yeah, I, I thought that was a great film. Of the other Bond films, um, I think To Russia with Love uh, was great. The, the Diamonds of Rubber was nasty. <laughs> no, that was a nasty film. It was, um, but all I've liked the last one least I've I've liked all the Daniel Craig Bond films. Me too. I don't, funnily enough, we were working, we were doing this film Archangel in Latvia, and when we we wondered why at the end of everyday shooting Daniel was pumping iron in the gym, what none of us knew was he'd just been offered the Bond film. Mm-hmm. So there's another connection, and because the next thing he did was Bond. But I've loved all his Bond films. Me too. Well, usually at this point, I would ask, "What's your favorite spy book?" But I think you kind of both mentioned that earlier with different Le Carre novels. So yeah. I think uh, what I'll close is no, go on, Ian. No, I, no, I, was, I think um, a perfect spy. Yeah, it was my favorite book, and 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 a great TV series. Um, what I'll close this out with then as you've written at least two Bond films and the series is in a bit of a state of flux at this point, what would you do with Bond now? Well, we, we, would, we would never be involved because uh, the Bond films are so technical and, and we are, you know, that's just not our thing. I don't, I don't, what we're, I don't know. I had one idea for a Bond plot and it was about someone who can manipulate the weather, but the weather seems to be manipulated enough yeah. with global warming. Um, I think that ended up in the Avengers in 1998, with uh, Sean Connery, uh, funnily uh, enough. No, I, I must admit, and, and it's obviously part of the generational thing, that I would still prefer to write something set in the Cold War than, mm. than, contemporary, than, than a contemporary espionage story. I suppose in that sense, that if, if you were given the reins, you would then take it back? Yes. If I had the chance to do an espionage series, I'd say, well, can we set it in 1970 or 79 or, you know, mm. or when the war went up? Hmm. Yeah, we've just written a movie. Um, I won't go into what it is. but it, Oh, yes, East Berlin. It, but it, it, yes, it, it's set in the late, well, mostly in the 80s. Uh, but again, and it ends up in East Berlin when the wall was still up. You know what I mean? And that, that that's that's such a great period because of all the the, the tension that's 
that's implicit all the time. Oh, the, the, there's another great movie, was The Lives of Others. I think that's a fantastic movie. It's not exactly a spy movie. But it's it's spy almost... adjacent, though. It's what? It's yes, spy it adjacent. Yeah. That's, it's, you it's... know the film we're talking about, guys? Yep. Yeah, it's a great film. Really, really good film. So, so... It won Best Foreign Film at the Oscars. It should yeah. have won Best Film. Really good. And, and Dick, would you agree with Ian in terms of taking Bond back to the Cold War, perhaps, or 60s or something like that? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, there's so many ideas that are flashed around. You know, he's going to be black, he's going to be female. I mean, all those things. I, I, they all sound a little bit sort of by the numbers to me. And it's it's hard to think. You may have to go back a little bit. Yes, to to go back in time might be a good idea well i think before we close this off jens is there anything you're working on at the moment you'd like to to tell us about or uh, anything you'd like to preview well the, yeah one is a heist action film that dick talked about set in the cold war and and it has um, a very very big producer and a big star attached uh, which we're not going to tell you because it could it would, it would jinx it. It would and jinx then it. Yes, quite right. We, we've just finished a, a music-driven film set during COVID in Britain. True story. Just finished the second draft. And we have another film. We have two films that were put off with COVID. We had a film mm. called You Really Got Me, uh, which Jeremy Thomas is producing about the kinks. And, and COVID killed that, but now we're, we're now it looks like it's going to be revived. Uh, hopefully, you never well, know. I'm a I'm a big I, fan of the commitments. So anything you guys do that's musical, thank you. Yeah, well, we have one music gym, and we and we have a series here about an aging rock star, uh, which again that would be a comedy. That would be in Vancouver. If that we would do be it. in Vancouver. That that's it. Awesome, awesome. But it's. Uh, you know, COVID stopped everything. So we, we've been writing a lot on spec and a lot of things we wouldn't have written otherwise. Uh, and now we hope they all pay off. If they don't, well, we're filing for bankruptcy. <laughs> oh, there's one other. We've written, written a, a series about Marlena Dietrich as well, which is at the moment sitting in, in, in limbo, but we like it very much. Oh, I would love to see that. Where are you, where, where are you guys? Where are you physically sitting? I'm sitting in London. I'm in Vancouver. Oh, really? Yes. I actually have a, a strange connection to porridge in my lineage. My grandfather worked at St. Bernard's next to Ealing Hospital, um, and they filmed bits of porridge there. And he actually talks about seeing bits of porridge being filmed there, which I still remember him telling us about. That's a really? Nice was, little it, connection was it standing there. in for a prison? I mean, I think they were using it for external shots, I believe. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, um, it, it, it had a very interesting fascia. It's not really much of it left there anymore. But um, yeah, yeah. But um, gentlemen, I, I do want to thank you both for sitting down with us today and telling us a, telling us how you put together and saved Never Say Never Again because frankly, you did. <laughs> um, Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. Very nice. Nice to meet you guys. Thank you. All the best. Bye bye. There you go, Cam. Mr. Clement, Mr. Lafrenet have now joined the ranks of the Bond greats that we've had on Spy Hards. That's right. We've talked to a few writers, I think, or maybe just the one, Jeffrey Kane, I think, with Goldeneye. I believe so, yes. Yeah, and 
I'm always fascinated with what goes on behind the scenes of these Bond films because even the ones that go fairly smoothly, there's so many iterations of the script, so many concepts that can change along the way. And I know that both Dick and Ian played a very significant role in shaping the first two acts of Never Say Never Again. The action stuff in the third, um, you know, the third section, that was kind of all hammered down already. But they had to, you know, figure out essentially, as they talked about in the interview, how Bond got to the Bahamas, what sort of the character, you know, bits are, some of the dialogue. I know they invented the character of Nigel Smallfawcett, played by Rowan Atkinson. So there's a lot of contributions there that they may not have gotten credit, but I'm sure they played a significant role in shaping the tone of what that movie is. Yeah, I mean, people who don't know about, understand screenwriting, much like myself, you could go, why do you need this sort of stuff? Surely Bond turns up here, does this, and goes somewhere else. But when you watch a film like that, you'll just start to wonder why people are doing things after a while. And it needs uh, connective tissue, which they bring up in the, in the interview is it, it needs that structure to feel like a cohesive story. And not only do they bring that, but they bring the comedy that they're known for with, you know, porridge and things like that. I mean, they even have a porridge joke in the film, um, which I think is one of the actual, the, the funnier bits of the movie. So, I mean, I, I don't think I can speak enough as to how much I'm I'm happy we had them on the show and how much I think they really did save this film. I mean, we've spoken about it on the review, the troubled production, um, and they, as they mentioned, you know, they acted as kind of like middlemen between the Connery camp and the sort of Schwarzman McClory camp. I can only imagine how tense that that set must have been. Well, they talk about how they kind of tried to stay out of any of the drama going on because there was so many legal issues going on with this movie. They talk about how, you know, Connery was getting frustrated because the production was so rocky. It's not the best situation to step into if you're a writer. <laughs> it can be very tense and awkward. And so the fact that they were able to get some of their fun ideas across, shape things, invent characters, it speaks to, I think, their professionalism, but also just that there was within this very tumultuous production room for creativity to still happen yeah and and they mentioned they sort of made the anecdote of you don't negotiate with a plumber when your basement's flooded which i think is perfect because they got to come in and sort of go well this is what we think will fix it and then they go okay mm -hmm. look at we spoke about the um sort of intro sequence it's not pre-title sequence it's like an intro and much as we don't like to finish product what they designed based against what they were going to have with this sort of weird jousting scene. And then Bond kills someone and takes the mask off and it's Sean Connery. And what a silly idea that would have been. It's very like almost Monty Python sounding. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Would you like to see that opening happen in a future Bond movie still? Like that idea is still out there. No, that's awful. <laughs> can you, can you just, even if it was an official Bond film, like, can you imagine the John Barry, Bond sort of sweet coming in as he lifts the helmet off and da 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 da. And you're like, wait, is this like a ye olde Bond film? Should we play it on like a, a, a lute or something? I pity the brand new Bond actor who has that as their introduction to the franchise. <laughs> but instead of like a proper Knight of Armor, they just give him the Monty Python uh, Holy Grail outfits. Of course, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so Galahad probably. With the with the guys behind them cl uh, clacking the coconuts together. Of course, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That actually would suit the tone of this film. Mm. Um, 
but yeah, I, them fixing that was great. It's a shame we had the music, but we spoke about that on the review. But other contributions, of course, you mentioned Nigel Small Fawcett. Crazy to think that Rowan Atkinson's gone on to play his own mega spy. Uh, but this was his first thing over. He'd never been overseas until this point. Yeah, and I mean, I'm someone who, you know, didn't necessarily grow up, but discovered Mr. Bean in my, um, I think, early high school years and became a big fan of that character. And so I remember seeing... And of course, he's a personal model for you now. He is. I model my whole life on Mr. Bean. Yeah, you could put the teddy bear down, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I remember seeing Never Seen Ever Again. I think it was probably on the rewatch because I saw it when I was maybe 11 or so. And I don't know that Rowan Atkinson would have you know, leaped off the screen to me at that age. But I remember when I rewatched it with my friend Mark. And at that point, him and I were very familiar with Mr. Bean. We had not only watched it on TV, we'd gone. They put them out on VHS here. Um, there was like, I think, four or five VHS tapes of the best of Mr. Bean. And we went to the video store and rented all of them. And so we had watched all those and then to be able to go and show Mark Never Say Never, Say Never Again and see Rowan Atkinson. I remember that being very exciting. Did the rest of your conversations take place like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> hello there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you could keep doing the rest of this uh, wraparound just in that voice, please. No, I will not. <laughs> And of course, the Shrubland sequence, which we're both big fans of, they were instrumental in really punching that up. Um, and you know, it's interesting as well, because Pat Roach is the big henchman that fights Bond in that. And he is in Alfie, the same pet, which they were sort of in pre-production when they got signed up to do this film. So they were very good friends with Pat Roach. Yeah, and Pat Roach is one of those just utility action guys that if you were into 80s or 90s action movies he pops up so much the indiana jones films uh, one of the conan films so like this was really cool to have and i think that fight scene is one of the big highlights of the movie and i don't it's really tough and we talked about it in the uh review as to like which is preferable between the spa sequences in thunderball versus never seen ever again but that's not tough. I, I don't know. Like, I really love the Guy Dolman trolling going on through the um, through Thunderball. But what I do appreciate is when you have that whole section in Never Seen Ever Again, it doesn't feel like you're going through the same beats. It doesn't feel like you're just replicating all the stuff that we'd seen before. It actually feels like a very distinct, um, unique, you know, sequence in the film. Yeah, it really does stand on its own two feet, unlike some other sequences, especially at the end which I think is still a bit of a mess. But, you know, and, and just sort of wrap up on their Never Say Never Again part. I just think that it's crazy to think they were brought in for three weeks and then asked to come back to do more. You could tell that they were struggling as a production. And I think Dick and Ian were the saving grace they needed at that moment. And I'm glad that they got together and sort of done their work for the film. But I think what I want to move on to is, of course, we discussed quite a lot of their other spy works as well. Two films that we are going to tackle on the show at some point, uh, Otley and Catch Me a Spy, which were sort of done in quite quick succession, directed by Dick Clement, but also written by Dick and Ian. Now, we didn't talk about Otley too much, but uh, Tom Courtney stars in that one, but also he stars in Catch Me a Spy with Kirk Douglas, and that sounded like quite the troubled production. 
Yeah, and you and I both watched Catch Me a Spy uh, in preparation for the interview. I'm not going to spoil anything about what we thought of the movie. We'll tackle it further down the road on this podcast. But when you watch the film, you know, they had a lot of stories about Kirk Douglas. And you can tell that this was a production that probably had some issues going on. And Kirk Douglas was, you know, a big movie star. But this was the era of Kirk Douglas where he, you know, he was getting older, struggling a little bit to kind of find his footing. And he would become kind of that very respected elder statesman in a couple of years and become, you know, this Hollywood legend. But this is kind of that 70s period where he kind of doesn't know what to what to do and movies are changing around him. And I think that um, Catch Me a Spy is kind of a really interesting curio in his filmography. Yeah, I, I, again, I, I, I agree with you. I won't spoil my thoughts on the film. But I, it was interesting because I don't think there'll be many uh, Catch Me a Spy, Spy Master interviews. So I'm, I'm glad we got to speak with the director and the writers. Yeah, I mean, a lot of when you do a James Bond interview, a lot of the information is just out there because people have been interviewed so many times. But mm-hmm. one thing I really enjoy about this podcast is that when we do Catch Me a Spy, we can point to this interview and say, hey, we've got production stories about Catch Me a Spy. What are you talking about? We're totally repackaging this, Cam. <laughs> we'll just clip that part out and do whole new um, wraps around. Yeah, yeah, no one will know. Shh, don't yeah. tell anyone, guys. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> Um, and then we also spoke about their sort of TV miniseries with BBC uh, Spies of Warsaw. Now, unfortunately, I was planning to try and watch that for this uh, interview, but it's really hard to find in the UK. It turns out it's actually on Apple TV, but you have to pay for it. It's the only way you can get it. I don't have access to that. So I couldn't get it, unfortunately. Um, but they had a lot of fun making that show. And they're both, it turns out, massive fans of spy literature. Um, and so... That really sort of bled into this. I mean, they've been fans of Lucare's work for a very long time. They came across the book that Spies of Warsaw was based off of and uh, just instantly wanted to turn it into a film, which then became a miniseries just through the machinations of uh, the, you know, the film industry. But uh, they were you know, they were very passionate about that. And uh, I'm excited to look into it at some point. I know we won't, probably won't tackle it on the show because it's not a movie. But um, I mean, this, these guys' spy credentials run deep. Yeah, and I've never um, read a novel by Alan First. Um, Spyberry podcast is probably the place to go if you want to hear more about Alan First. But what I'm always interested in is when writers come aboard a project like that. Like, are they fans of the source material? Because when they talked about Never See Never Again, they weren't even sure they ever read the book Thunderball when they had that assignment. And so it was interesting to hear them talk so passionately about their love of First. And then, yeah, leaping into Le Carre and how, like, you know, Ian said it would be one of his dream projects to do a Lacare adaptation. Um, never say never, guys. Never, ever. Say never again. No, I'm not going to start singing that song. We've had enough of that this week. Um, yeah, ultimately, I, it would be interesting to see what they would do with a spy property. I think, I, I as I say, I can't speak to what spies of Warsaw, but I'm currently watching Alfie the Saint Pet, and. I'd watched Porridge and I'd watched a little bit of The Likely Lads in preparation for this. And they were both straight comedies, like sitcoms. Mm. But Alvida St. Pet is very much um, about men getting through emotions and mental issues and things like that. Like for the 80s, very early 80s, it's, it's quite a revolutionary concept. And I'm really enjoying it. And it's not laugh a minute, joke a minute type stuff that you would find in American comedies. So they show in that that they can write this sort of straight drama, 
more or less. Um, and so I, 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 as I say, I'm quite looking forward to sort of checking it out. But I think they have the chops to make a, a full-on Lucari adaptation. Well, you can just tell they're incredibly versatile because you look at doing all of this British comedy work, doing you know a couple Bond films. They worked on Moonraker for a little bit, um, and then also just you know Spies of Warsaw and working with Bruckheimer, doing all of these kind of popcorn action films, you know, contributing stuff to The Rock and Pearl Harbor. Um, and then also they referenced Gone in 60 Seconds. So it's just really interesting to me how incredibly versatile they are. And also they've had very long careers and seem tireless in the pursuits of more creative endeavors. Like they don't seem like guys who are resting on their laurels at all. No, I, I was reading a statistic earlier, and this is a very UK specific, so I, I'm not sure if there's a, an American duo that beats them. But if you look at some of the long-standing British comedy acts, the two Ronnies, uh, Laurel and Hardy, things like that, they out, they've outlasted them all. Yeah. And, and they're still going strong. They, they were just telling us, uh, you know, it, it may not make the, the full interview, but there were some of the work they've got coming up, and what, three or four projects on the go at the moment? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, wow. I, I think as soon as I hit 50, I'm just going to stop moving. <laughs> I've already stopped. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I podcast. <laughs> yes, glorious. You can sit down and just talk to me for two hours. It's perfect. That's but right. um, yeah, and also, you know, they're, they're big fans of, of Bond, which we sort of started the conversation off with and ended it with, really. They, they love Bond and, and you know, they, they also agree with me, really. Not only that the underwater scenes in Thunderball are tedious, but also that um, Bond should go back. I think, like, believe me, I would not be complaining if the next Bond series went back to the 60s or 70s, because I think that's such a, there's so much atmosphere to that time period that you can work with. And you also get to remove things like smart blood, cell phones, all this technology that I think the more you keep wandering down that road, the harder it gets to justify a Bond ever being in any sort of crisis or anything. Like, it gets kind of complicated. Like, you wouldn't point. send him. You wouldn't be doing exactly. This. You'd be sending in a drone to do half these things yeah. at a certain point. You can kind of remove that, but there's always those elements of like Bond is all about, um, you know, promoting products. Like that's always been tied into the DNA of the show since day one, and you would lose a lot of that money coming in um, if you weren't able to feature a lot of products in your film, which I think genuinely Bond cares about. I don't think it, it's part of the fabric of Bond. If you go through the history of the franchise. They are constantly working with these brands to, you know, add to the world of Bond. And you would remove, I think, a lot of that. So that might be an issue. Um, it's also like the fact, and this is something I kind of have stumbled across uh, um, just in general. When fans can always have that idea, it's probably not the best idea. I think the best idea is the one that fans can't think of. And I think almost every Bond fan has thought of this idea. I, I would agree with you on the second point. The first point, I think you could still do in the 60s they were still coca-cola they were still aston martin they were still omega they all still existed at this point and they could always do a retro range to tie in with bond and make a load of money i don't think that really holds up but you're right though in the sense of if i'm writing this film they shouldn't be doing it because i shouldn't be writing the film simple really yeah it's like you like to think that writers are ahead of the audience versus thinking along the lines of what the audience is you know expecting and wanting but then again we regularly smash our faces into the wall when it comes to watching star trek these days so yeah 
it's up for discussion, isn't it, really? But we won't dwell on that because we're not here to fix the Bond franchise. Frankly, I don't need, think it needs fixing. What we are here to say is thank you to Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet for taking the time in their very clearly busy schedules to talk to us about a film they made close to 40 years ago at this point. And, you know, they came in and saved that film and they came in and saved us today. That's right. That's right. And boy, did we need saving. We were we were drowning in that uh, in that river with the horse. <laughs> yes, um, but uh, this is the point where I usually throw over to you, Cam, to ask what we're doing next week. That's right. We have another major interview for Never Say Never Again. We are going to talk to Barbara Carrera, and I think this is a really fascinating interview. We sat down with her for you know fair stretch of time and you're gonna get some really interesting insights into the character of fatima blush no we, we did tee this up in the review just a few days ago and thank you for checking it out thank you for listening to today's episode um but yeah you guys have known since we covered condor man i've uh i've been wanting to speak to barbara carrera and it i, I even say in the interview there's watershed moments in spy Heart's history and I, and I think this is one of them i think i i've definitely ticked off a box that i've been wanting to tick for a long time and barbara was nothing but generous with her time we speak to her about not just uh never said ever again but a lot about it but a lot about her other films condor man included there for quite an extended amount of time and there's some interesting oliver reed stories that you can check out next week so that episode drops uh next tuesday so make sure to stick around and check that out so we hope you enjoyed our first Spymaster interview for Never Say Never Again. If you did, please leave us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, agents... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold, hold on, Scott. Um, I need a urine sample. If you could fill this beaker for me... From here? <laughs>